You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. It can diminish pain, reduce fear, stress, and anxiety, change old habits, and even lower blood pressure. Sound like a miracle drug? It's hypnosis, and its use today as a therapeutic technique is to help gain more control over one's behavior, emotions, or physical well-being. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Herbert Spiegel, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University and co-author of several books, including his most recent book, Trance and Treatment, The Clinical Uses of Hypnosis. Today we are discussing hypnosis, how it has changed over the years, and its current clinical applications. Welcome, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you. Dr. Spiegel, how would you define hypnosis? Hypnosis is simply this. It's attentive, receptive concentration. Uh, years ago, somebody called it heated imagination, which is a very interesting term. But right now, we call it attentive, receptive concentration. And in a simpler way, what does that really mean? It means that there is a reduction of peripheral awareness with an increase of focal attention. And it's just the opposite of what is often regarded, uh, thought of as hypnosis, which is a form of sleep. It has nothing to do with sleep, and that's why the term hypnosis is really inaccurate. But we're stuck with the term because when it was originally uh, discovered, they thought it was a form of sleep, but it's not true. Uh, another way of, of defining it is controlled imagination. When was it originally discovered? Oh, about the 18th century. Mesmer was uh, the pioneer in that, and in the early days, they thought it was like a mystical experience, some kind of spiritual mystical experience. Then Mesmer thought, well, no, it's not that. It's some kind of a magnetic influence changes the brain activity, and as it's because he thought that, he used to use magnets in the presence of the patient and thought that some kind of magnetic force went from the magnet into the patient and produced this hypnotic state. Several years later, other people thought it would be, it's not really magnetic, it's like a form of sleep. And that's where the term hypnosis came about. It's like a, a, a variation of sleep. The induction ceremony was... Well, now gradually you'll go more and more relaxed, more and more relaxed. You get sleepy and sleepy and sleepy, and eventually you'll be in this hypnotic state. Well, it turned out that all that is we now know is all unnecessary. Eventually, the current awareness of hypnosis uh, is more accurately called it's a, a psychological shift of attention a shift in concentration, or, again, controlled imagination. So, in other words, hypnosis today is very different in both understanding and definition than it was, let's say, 30 years ago. Oh, sure. Yes, quite different, because we now know the concept of heterosexual concentration or controlled imagination is a very useful way. You know, Albert Einstein put it this way. He said, Imagination is more useful than knowledge, and that certainly applies to the role of hypnosis because uh, 
the way in which we use our imagination to discipline it in such a way that we control our thoughts and feelings is the essence of what we're now doing with hypnosis in therapy. How did you get trained in hypnosis, Dr. Spiegel? Oh, I was a resident at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in, in Washington. A professor of psychiatry from Germany, escaped from Germany, his name was Gustav Schopenberg. He came to America, and he had to pass the boards, the medical boards here. And I was asked to train him to take the examination in English. And I spent a good deal of time doing that with him. And in return, since he was very knowledgeable in hypnosis, he taught me how to use hypnosis. Now, that was just before... World War II broke out. So right after that, Pearl Harbor happened, and the next day I was in the Army because I had been in the Reserves. Although I was trained as a psychiatrist, the Army needed young, healthy doctors to be in combat. So next thing I knew, here I was assigned as battalion surgeon with the 1st Infantry Division, and uh, in a short time, we were in North Africa. So I was in the invasion of North Africa as a battalion surgeon. And in that role, I had 1,000 men that I was in combat with, and I was their doctor. And I lived with them in the invasion all through combat, which lasted about six months. During that time, uh, since I just learned about hypnosis, I noticed that um, many soldiers would have anxiety and fear states. They would tend to disconnect, dissociate, and they seemed like spontaneous trance states. And uh, in my contact with them, I was able to show them how that they could now reconnect with themselves and reestablish contact with themselves. And here I was discovering that this was spontaneous hypnosis happening, and I was now enabling them to uh, discover what it was and get conscious control over to bring them back into their control. That's very interesting. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me is Dr. Herbert Spiegel clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and co-author of several books on hypnosis. Dr. Spiegel, what is the hypnotic induction profile? The hypnotic induction profile is a test, an examination that I discovered back in the 70s in which we are able to determine the biological and psychosocial factors uh, that are relevant in discovering trans capacity. We now know that only about 80% of the population is capable of going into a trans state. Why is that, sir? For two reasons. One, our biological endowment, and secondly, the presence of mental disease. Mental disease interferes with the flow of concentration which is necessary for hypnotic concentration. So the 80% who are hypnotizable are usually mentally healthy people 
who have the flow, and that can be measured by the hypnotic induction profile. The profile also picks up people who have a break in that ribbon of concentration, and that identifies people who, although they originally had the biological endowment for dissociation, because of the mental disease, the break in their synaptic circuitry, they are unable to maintain the flow which is necessary for hypnosis. How do you determine where different patients fall into this profile? The first sign is the biological marker, which is what we call the eye roll sign. And that is the vertical movement of the eyeballs. If you ask somebody to hold their head fixed, and while holding their head fixed, look upward to the top of their head. And while looking upward, slowly close your eyes while you're looking upward. Then the examiner measures the distance between the lower eyelid and the lower edge of the cornea. That space varies in different people on a zero to four scale. If the sclera it doesn't show at all between the cornea and the lower eyelid, that's a zero. If the eye roll moves up vertically so you see nothing but the sclera, that's a four. And then different gradations between those two extremes identify a zero, one, two, three, and four. That's the biological indicator of the ability to dissociate, and it's a reflection of the circuitry in the brain that enables that kind of synaptic formation. Now, how do you use this profile practically in using it with hypnosis in patients? You examine the patient individually. The eye roll itself takes only a few seconds to do, but that's not the whole story. We have to now find out, although the they're in, see, the eye roll itself has a bell-shaped curve distribution, about 20% on the low side, about 20% on the high side, and about, about 50, 60% in the mid-range. However, that's not the whole story because of the 20% of the population that does not have the capacity to associate. So the hypnotic induction profile now measures how they can fulfill this ability to dissociate, discover this ability, and how can you measure the dissociative capacity and how they can come out of the dissociated state. So during the, during the profile, once their eyes are closed now, they're given some instructions. I'm going to touch the side of your arm and it'll develop a light buoyancy and uh, it will float upward. Later, I'm going to touch your elbow and after I do, the buoyancy will go away. And during that time that it's up, they are enabled to discover this buoyant sensation and then they're asked to compare the movement of that left arm that is focused on with the movement of the right arm. And they discover, without being told that they'll discover this, that they have more control in the right arm compared to the left arm. Then after they discover that, I touch their elbow, and they discover that they have the control becomes equal again. 
And then I ask, well, why did the control become equal? And usually they have an amnesia to the fact that I told them I'm going to touch their elbow. And they don't remember that I said it, and they don't remember that I touched the elbow. So that gives us a psychosocial measurement. We develop now a discovering of dissociation, which is a control differential, and the amnesia to the cutoff signal, which is part of the hypnotic dissociation. I want to thank Dr. Herbert Spiegel, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the clinical uses of medical hypnosis today. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.